Well, good morning. It's a delight to see you. We had a wonderful trip to Israel, and it is wonderful to be back. Um, I woke up at 2.30 a.m. Sunday morning. I got all kinds of things done. I finished up my Bible study notes. I studied for my Sunday school lesson. I baked cookies for my girls. You know, all of that before about 6.30 a.m. So <laughs> it's amazing what you can get done. But what happens in the afternoon is like you just hit a wall. It's like somebody pulls the plug and you just deflate. And I just like want to go to bed. But you can't let yourself do that or you're, you know, you're going to stay out of whack. So yesterday was 3.30 and this morning I made it to 4.30. So yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're making progress. We're making progress. Well, we've had a wonderful study this week as we've been looking in the book of John, the end of John chapter 2 and John chapter 3, some of the most famous passages in all of the Word of God. And sometimes when passages are familiar, we have a tendency to kind of just go right over them as if I know this story. Can I just tell you, I have seen new things this week, and I am so excited about what we're going to be looking at as we dig in to God's Word. At the end of chapter 2, we have the account of Christ cleansing the temple. Now, he's gone into Jerusalem. It's a time of Passover. And they had taken the court of the Gentiles and turned it into a place where people could purchase their sacrifices, make an exchange of money to be able to pay their temple tax. But the problem with that was people had come in from everywhere, and there were Gentiles who could not get in because that's the only place they could go to worship. And so Jesus comes in, makes a a, a, a cord and he whip and he comes in there and he drives him out and he's turning tables over. This is not the mild, meek Jesus that some people want us to believe, right? This is not a caricature of Jesus. This is the holy son of God who's refusing to allow his father's house to be turned in a place for merchants and those who would make money off of those people who had come to worship. And instead he cleaned it out so that the Gentiles could come into the court and could have a place to worship. Evidently, while he's there, he's also performing miracles and signs because it tells us at the end in verse 23, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. So if we go then to chapter 3, which is where I want us to focus in our time together this morning, we see that Nicodemus obviously was observing Christ when he cleansed the temple when he performed the signs, the miracles, and he was drawn to him. Let's begin in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi. Now that would have been a salutation of respect for a man who was a member of the Sanhedrin, who had probably been trained by some of the greatest rabbis in the Jewish religion, for him to come to Christ and call him rabbi was a, a real sign of respect. We know that you've come by God, from God, which uh, once again, he's acknowledging nobody could do what you do unless they had come from God. As a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, did Nicodemus ask him anything about the kingdom of God? <laughs> what did he say? It's obvious to me that you're from God because nobody that wasn't from God could do the things that you're doing. And Jesus just goes straight to the heart of the matter because obviously Jesus 
knew what was on his heart and his mind. And so he addresses what he's really there for. He goes after the reason Nicodemus has sought him out at night to question him. And that's because he's wanting to know, how do you enter the kingdom of God? How do I know that I'm going to have eternal life? Because for the Jews, it's a works-based religion. They were trying to be good enough to get to heaven, to earn God's favor. And he's drawn to Christ. And Christ knows you've come here because you want to know about eternal life. And so what does Jesus say to him? He says, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see. Not only can you not see, you will not be able to see. You certainly won't be able to enter unless you're born again. So Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? I'm sure he was thinking it'd be nice to be able to start over, (laughs) to get a fresh start. But how could that even be possible? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. So what is he talking about here? He says you've got to be born of the flesh and born of the Spirit. And when he said that, what we understand now as believers on this side of the cross, I'm sure was confusing to Nicodemus. We understand he's talking you're born of the, the, you have a physical birth, you're born of the flesh, but then you also must be born of the spirit to enter the kingdom of God. I listened to a message by Tim Keller this past week on John chapter 3, and he made an analogy and brought in some understanding that all these years I've read this passage, I've missed it. Because what he talked about was physical birth. Now, many of you in this room have given birth. Some of you have not, but you have a sister or a friend or somebody that's given birth. You may have even been in the room when someone gave birth. And you understand that women go through what we call labor. (laughs) That doesn't even come close. Um, (laughs) There's agony involved. But I want to ask you, does the baby do anything to be born? No. The mother does all the work, right? Okay, now think about Christ. We're born physically, but we must be born spiritually. Jesus Christ would labor and suffer agony and ultimately give his life that we might be born again. What a beautiful comparison. And these people would have understood it. We're now, because of medical advances, very rarely lose a mother or a child in childbirth. But in the time of Christ, many women actually gave their lives in giving birth. So it was a proper analogy that he was using here. You must be born physically. You can do nothing. (laughs) The baby does nothing, but you've got to be born spiritually. You can do nothing. Christ does it all. Christ does it all for us. So we must be born of the Spirit. You know, in fact, Hebrews 12 1 and 2, right after we've just gotten through the whole chapter of Hebrews 11, the great faith chapter, the Bible says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, all these faith people in chapter 11 surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And how do we do that? How do we run the race of this life that can sometimes be so difficult? By fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary 
and lose heart. How did Jesus do it? How did he face the cross and the agony of separation from the Father? He did it by looking forward, by knowing that there would be joy to come. How does a mother in labor survive? Because she knows that all of this hard work, all this pain, all this agony will result in the birth of a child that she will love and nurture and care for and that will bring great joy. Now, I can tell you, I had our first one natural, not by choice. The next three, I had an epidural. (laughs) It was wonderful. For those of you who have not been there yet, let me just tell you, I would highly recommend it. It's awesome to be able to lay there and look at the monitor and go, oh, look, I'm having a contraction. (laughs) That's awesome. Okay, you just tell me when to push and we'll, we'll go. This is really great, especially after having done it the other way the first time. In fact, I was so exhausted after I had Grant being in hard labor all night long. And um, they brought him, you know, you have the baby right afterwards. And they said, well, do you want to keep the baby in the room or would you like the baby to go to the nursery? I was like, take the baby to the nursery. Like I could not even hold my head up. I was so exhausted. I was so tired. I didn't know it. I didn't think I'd ever walk again. Um, scaring some of you to death and haven't had children yet, right? (laughs) But there is a reason they call it labor. It doesn't come close to what Christ experienced for us, that we might be born of the Spirit, that we might receive His life through the Holy Spirit who regenerates us, brings us back to life, and comes to live within us to give us everything we need to live this life. And just as there's joy at the birth of a baby, and there was tremendous joy with all four of our children. And can I tell you, we were jumping up and down, hallelujahing, at the birth of grandchildren. And I've actually been in the delivery room with a couple of them when they come into the world, and there is, oh my, what an incredible joy that is. But I have to tell you, I experienced that same joy And I get to talk with someone who wants to know Jesus. And I get to share with them what Christ has done. And how by placing their faith in him, by turning from their sin and believing in who Christ is and what he's done, they too can be born again. And there's incredible joy, incredible excitement when someone commits their life to Christ and they're born again and their countenance changes because suddenly their sins have been wiped away and there's hope and there's joy, and there's peace, not only with God, but the peace of God. And Scripture tells us that the angels in heaven, the angels of God, rejoice even when one sinner repents and comes to Christ. So we know that if there's joy in heaven, that's what Christ was looking forward to. He knew there would be incredible joy to come for those who would come to him by faith, for those who would actually believe. And in fact, And John 1, we were looking at that, John 1, 12 and 13, it says, But as many received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Do you see that holy tension there between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man? We must believe. He has done it. There's nothing we can do to to earn salvation or to experience spiritual birth but believe. We must believe it. He's going to give us some other examples that will help us understand this even better. So let's go back to John chapter 3, and let's pick up in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, what's he talking about here? Can you see the wind? You don't actually see it. You see the effects of it. 
You see the leaves that it blow. You see that maybe it blows down a tree when it's very strong. You can see the effects of wind, but you don't actually see the wind. You don't actually know where it comes from. And so he's using that picture to say, so it is with the Spirit. Just like you can't control the wind, (laughs) you can't control the Spirit. The Spirit is given and he comes from God. He said, so is everyone who's born of the Spirit. You may not be able to see the Spirit, but you see the effect. You see the change that takes place in a person's life when they've been born of the Spirit. So then Nicodemus said to him in verse 9, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? One of the comparisons or one of the uh, things that Jesus was drawing from when he talked about being born of the water and spirit, I think there's a dual meaning here. For a long time, I thought where he said, you must be born of water and the spirit. And we know that when a baby's born physically, there's water, there's the amniotic fluid, and then you've got to be born spiritually. But he was also making reference to Old Testament prophecies from Ezekiel 36 is one of them, where he Ezekiel was given a word from God that God would sprinkle with living water, that he would cleanse his people, and he would put a new spirit within him, his spirit, which would lead them to obey him. So we have a picture that a cleansing is coming. It's also probably pointing to the baptism of John the Baptist because he would have been aware of what was happening because even remember some of the Pharisees and Sadducees were coming out to see what's going on with John, and he addresses them pretty strongly, does he not? You brood of vipers, why have you come? He addresses them because he knows they're just there out of curiosity. They're not really there because they want to experience a baptism of repentance. And that was the baptism of John. And what did John say? I baptize you with water, but one who's coming after me, one I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal, and he will baptize you what? With the Spirit and with fire. Now, if you remember Pentecost, what happened? They're baptized in the Spirit, but there are little flames of fire that are visible above every one of their heads, which was a picture of the presence of God from all the Old Testament. So there was no doubt in their mind that this was an anointing from God and that his presence now was not just meeting with them corporately in the temple, but would, in, would actually indwell them individually. So that's why the individual flames of fire. So that's the spirit and fire. John the Baptist was prophesying about what would happen. God had given him wisdom and insight into exactly what would happen. So we've got this holy tension here of God's sovereignty and not being able to control the Holy Spirit, and yet we must surrender. We must repent. We must believe. So he's going to give us another picture. Truly, truly, I say to you, We speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So he's saying nobody's been to heaven to know these things, but one has descended, the Son of Man. Christ has come to reveal the Father to us, we know that from our study, but also to teach us about heavenly things, to grant us heavenly truth. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. So what happened when Moses lifted up the serpent, and what is he talking about? Well, this was something that happened to the Israelites in the wilderness, and it's recorded for us in Numbers chapter 21. And what happened was the people began to murmur and complain. So beware. 
lest you start murmuring and complaining, okay? They began to murmur and complain and say, things were so much better for us back in Egypt. We, we don't like living out in this wilderness. And besides that, I'm sick of this manna. <laughs> I'm tired of this bread. They're murmuring and complaining. And what does the Lord allow to happen? He allows serpents to come into the camp and they start biting the people and they become sick. And so they cry out to Moses for deliverance. And as we saw when we studied the book of Judges, God always moves when his people cry out to him, even if their hearts aren't right right? When they cry out to him, God moves on their behalf, just as he does for us. So God told Moses, put a serpent on a bronze, a bronze serpent on a stick, hold that stick, that staff up, and anyone who looks at the serpent will be healed. Okay, now did they do anything to be healed? No, but they had to believe to look, right? Because if they didn't believe, they wouldn't, take, they wouldn't bother looking. And if they were so sick that there's nothing they could do, they could at least look, and if they looked at the serpent, they were healed. And what did he say? So must the Son of Man be lifted up on a cross. Once again, a type, a picture of what was to come in Christ. Just as the serpent was lifted up and all who looked, all who believed would be healed, Jesus Christ would be lifted up on a cross. And all who look, all who believe will be healed spiritually, healed internally. To whom or what we look for help reveals our belief and affection. Remember Lot's wife. She turned to look. What did it tell us about her? Her affections were still in Sodom, and she became a pillar of salt. So to whom or what are you looking for relief, for meaning, for satisfaction? If it's anything other or anyone other than Jesus Christ, you will not find what you're looking for. You will only find it in him. In fact, F.F. F. Bruce said, in this gospel, Jesus is glorified by being crucified. He who descended has now once more ascended up on high, but he has ascended by the way of the cross. The cross on which he was lifted up became the ladder of his ascent to the Father's presence. And the cross is for us a ladder of ascent to the Father. As we come to the cross, as we kneel before that cross, as we look to Christ and believe, he moves the kingdom of God is seen or entered, new birth is experienced, and eternal life began, begins through the saving cross work of Christ received by faith. Where else do we see Nicodemus? Well, I want you to look. Turn to John chapter 7 and look at verse 50. Now what's happened is the Sanhedrin is meeting and they're upset about the miracles that are happening, the miracles Jesus is performing, and they're wanting to do away with him. They're plotting against him already. And in the midst of this meeting, look who speaks up. Nicodemus, verse 50, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? They answered him, You're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And everyone went to his home. So Nicodemus was brave enough to stand up and to question. Now, wait a minute. He hasn't been tried yet. That's not how we operate. And then they're beginning to accuse him. You're not also from Galilee, are you? Are you associating with this man is what they're inferring. And then turn to chapter 19. 
And we're going to see Nicodemus once again at the end of Christ's life, at the cross, when Christ has given up his spirit. Look at verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Both of these men were risking their lives by coming and asking for the body of Jesus. Asking for the one they've just crucified, that the religious leaders had turned on. Nicodemus himself, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, and yet he was obviously a man of means as well because he brings these uh, these spices to be able to anoint the body of Christ and they wrap him quickly because it's almost the Sabbath, almost the Passover and they put him in Joseph's tomb. So he's associating with Jesus at the cross. Could it be, could it be that the words of Jesus were ringing in his ears so must the Son of Man be lifted up and he believed. I happen to think so. <laughs> even though the scripture doesn't really give us that insight. So then we pick up in 16 and following in John chapter 3, some of the most famous and familiar scriptures. And many believe it's gone from a dialogue between John or Jesus and Nicodemus to John's kind of recapping what Jesus was teaching here. Um, or else Christ is just sharing and he's He's sharing it with us because now it becomes a monologue. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Can we just say that together? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is the gospel in a nutshell. What does it tell us we must do? Believe. We must believe. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. We are told by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to let our light shine before men in such a way that they will see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. We have the light of Christ. If we've been born again, his spirit has regenerated us and come to indwell us. The light of Christ should be glowing. We should be reflecting the light of Christ from within. We're to be salt and light. We're to dispel the darkness. We are to be truth and healing and hope to a broken, dark, and hurting world. We are not to hang back 
and hold this good news just to ourselves or just meet and study about it, but we're to share it with everybody we can everywhere we go. So we are to be light. We are to be doing good deeds that point to Christ, that people look at us and say, wow, they love each other. We'll be known by our love for one another. That's what Jesus himself said. And so we're going to be loving each other. We're going to be loving others, and people are going to see it. Now, that's not normal. They love their enemies. They care for people who misuse them and talk about them. They willingly do what? Lay down their lives for others so they might come to Jesus Christ. That is the picture of who we're to follow because we're following our Savior. We're following Jesus Christ. One of the quotes that we had in our study this week, in fact, it was on page 74, says, what could be less complicated than belief? What could be more effortless than faith? There's nothing to achieve, no quest to complete, no challenge to overcome, no method to master, no merit to earn. We have only to trust the one who made us, who loves us, and who, who satisfied all God's expectations on behalf of all humanity. Most, however, will opt for religion over regeneration. Pride is not only powerful, it's binding. They don't come to the light because they love the darkness, because they're afraid the light will expose their sin. But what that's the lie of the enemy because it's in the exposure that there's healing. It's in the exposure that there's freedom, that we're able to repent of it. It makes me think about a time in Grant's junior year when um, he had been going through his period of Steve Calls developing his testimony. And um, he... <laughs> had been grounded and finally was not grounded. And so we were letting him go to dinner with some friends and he had to be in early. And so we were going with, had Bethany in the car and we were going to pick up one of her little buddies that was going to spend the night. And somebody had called and said, hey, just heads up, this particular family, the parents are out of town this weekend, heard there's going to be a party at this young man's house. Just want you to know, um, just in case Grant wants to go over there, that, that's what's going on. And we looked at each other and went, no. No, he would not. No, surely not. <laughs> So we go to pick up Bethany's little friend, and we think, let's just drive by there just to see. Well, of course, we drive by there, and there sits his truck along with a ton of other vehicles. And um, so we pull up in the drive, and Steve looks at me and goes, what do we do? I said, you go in. That's what we do. <laughs> so I'm sitting in the car because i got to stay with the girls, you know. And he goes to the door, and he knocks, and they said, come in. So he walked in. And if it had not been so sad, it would have been funny. Kids were climbing out windows. They were, coming through the, they were coming through the garage. We were actually parked at the back of the driveway behind one of my girls in my Sunday school class's Jeep. And she hopped in the car and turned around and I just went. <laughs> well, he stayed. He made a list of names of kids that were there. He bagged up the alcohol and brought it to our house so that he could present it to those parents when they got back in town. They left at a, a junior in high school and a ninth grader at home by themselves over the weekend and went like flew away, went out of town. Um, and so Monday morning, Steve and Grant were at the school when it opened and met with the principal. Grant was playing basketball at the time. And he knew that to have been drinking would make him have to sit out five games and they were in the state playoffs. They got knocked out in the first game. But he told Steve, he said, Dad, I know you're doing what you have to do. And he took him in and had him apologize to the principal, apologize to his coach, and apologize to his team. 
And I share that with you just to say, my husband's much better at that than I am. I'm the softy. I would not have taken it that far because I, I would have hurt so for him, but that's not good. Our children, just as we do, need to learn that they have to be responsible for their choices. And it was a character-building moment for him that he has not forgotten. And God used it in his life. And I just feel like there's maybe a mama in here who thinks your husband's too harsh. And I'm not talking abuse, and it's so sad that you even have to draw that line today, but you do. But your husband may be harder on your children than you are. <laughs> Sip your lip. And don't ever say anything in front of your children, because the enemy loves to come in and divide families. If you need to have a conversation, have it privately with your husband. It doesn't mean that they're, they're always right and that you're always wrong. I'm not saying that. But I think God uses both of us to kind of balance and to give the children what they need. I was the softer side. Steve was the firmer side. But they needed both. They need both. And so I just want to encourage, that was not a part of my notes, so that's a freebie for somebody here today. <laughs> okay, then we're going to be looking at John the Baptist. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he's spending time with them baptizing. Now, John 4 tells us Jesus himself was not personally baptizing, his disciples were. So some of John the Baptist's disciples see that all these people are coming to Jesus now, and they're not actually coming to John anymore, even though he's still baptizing some people in the baptism of repentance. So they're going to come to John in verse 26, and they say, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he's baptizing, and all are coming to him. Hear a little bit of jealousy going on here? John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend greatly... Um, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. In other words, this is why I'm here. I'm here to announce his coming. I am the best man. He's the bridegroom, the church, the bride, the people are his, not mine. So my joy is full because he has arrived. And what did he say in verse 30? He must increase, but I must decrease. That needs to be our mantra. <laughs> he must increase, but I must decrease. That is the secret to the spirit-filled life. That is the crucified life to which we have been called. And then he says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. If you receive the testimony of Christ, what you're saying is God is true. God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now listen to verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Believe, obey. Why are they paired here? And why is it that those who believe experience eternal life and those who don't obey the wrath of God comes upon them because we act out of what we believe if they're not obeying that means they're not believing so that's why those two are linked there we act out of what we believe and our obedience reveals our heart in fact what does John 14 21 say does anybody know familiar with that verse he who has my commandments and keeps them he it is who loves me 
And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose or reveal myself to him. We know that obedience precedes blessing. And the greatest blessing we can receive is to have revelation of Christ, for him to reveal himself to us, to speak to us, to empower us, to use us to advance his kingdom. And that power to obey is fueled by our love for Christ. The more I love him, the stronger my desire to obey. The more I love him, the less sin entices me. In fact, it begins to repulse me because now I see more clearly through kingdom eyes, not just fleshly eyes, but with eyes of the Spirit, and I hear with ears of the Spirit, and it changes my perspective. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, said, The struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane was a matter of Jesus' mind and feelings being hammered in every possible way to make him mistrust the Father. It's exactly how he hits us, to make us mistrust the Father. He almost died of it on the spot. Remember the Bible tells us he was sweating great drops of blood? But Jesus added to his friends, In me, this ruler has not the least thing on his side. It was finally what was not in Jesus that made him invincible, that kept him safe. This is the true situation. Nothing has power to tempt me or move me to wrong action that I have not given power but what I permit to be in me. And the most spiritually dangerous things in me are the little habits of thought, feeling, an action that I regard as normal because everyone is like that and it's only human. Think of someone that Satan demanded to sift like wheat. Do you remember that? It's in Luke chapter 22. When Jesus told Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you and he would not have been able to demand permission if there was not something that needed to be sifted. Jesus was able to say, the ruler has nothing in me. He has no hold over me. That's how he was able to be tempted in all ways, just as we are yet without sin. And yet, I, like you, am saying, but I have a sin nature. <laughs> I'm not Christ. I'm not sinless like Christ. But the Spirit of God who lives within me is. He is. And the more he increases and the more I decrease the more he empowers me to live the Christian life in faithfulness to my Savior. I have a great quote that I'm closing with, and it's not on your handout because Lindsay gave it to me this morning as we were praying for each other. Um, the weakness of our flesh is not a hindrance, but an invitation. Oh, can I just tell you, I just met every one of your excuses. Every excuse the enemy has been whispering in your ear this morning that that's great for her. She's the pastor's wife. She teaches the Bible. She's supposed to say those kind of things. She's supposed to believe those kind of things. No, it begins with belief. And when I believe and I begin to focus on him and love him, I understand I am weak. But that weakness is not a hindrance. That weakness is actually one of my greatest assets because it makes me dependent upon him. And apart from him, I can do nothing. But in Christ, I can do all things. So let's silence the lie of the enemy. And right now you say, Lord, thank you for this weakness in my life, whatever it may be. Because I'm going to view it now as an invitation 
to the power of your spirit taking over. I'm asking that in in this particular circumstance, in this particular issue in my life, I'm asking you, Father, to increase, and I am choosing to decrease so that you may take over and that you may get all the glory. As he increases, so will his light in my life. What was that scripture I quoted earlier from Matthew 5, 16? Let your light shine before men. We were challenged in our study this week to do that. And we were asked a question. In fact, we were asking, we were asked, what are you presently doing to shine the light of Jesus into your community? So I want to ask you this morning, how is the light of the gospel shining through your life? How are you showing a lost, dark, hurting world the light, the good news of the gospel? Ask him this morning to show you. And maybe you're here in this Bible study and you're thinking, you know what? I've never been born of the Spirit. I haven't been born again. I want to tell you this morning, based on the authority of God's Word, all you have to do is believe. Repent. Recognize that you're a sinner, that you've been separated because of your sin from a holy but loving God. And turn to Him and believe. Believe that Jesus is who He said He is. Believe that Jesus died and bore your sin in his body on that cross. That he was buried, but that God raised him up on that third day. And because he was lifted up, you can look to him and believe. If you will do that, the Bible tells us, if you will call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. So I want to pray right now, and I want to give you an opportunity, if you've never prayed and committed your heart and life to Jesus Christ to do that right now. Do you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you, Abba Father, that you've given us your spirit who bears witness with our spirit that we are your children. And so, Abba, we come to you right now in all of our weaknesses, acknowledging they are an invitation to experience all of you. So, Lord, even as believers, we lay our lives before you today, and we ask you to fill us to overflowing. We ask you to let your light shine in our life and help us to make a difference, to be difference makers in our families, in our community. And, Lord, for any woman here this morning who's never turned to Jesus, who's never looked to Jesus to be saved, I pray right now she will. And if you're in this room and you've never done that, I'm going to lead you in a prayer, but you can pray whatever your heart feels right now. It's not about the words. God's looking at your heart anyway. And if your heart is pounding and you know that God is speaking to you, respond to him and surrender. And just say something like this. Heavenly Father, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for drawing me. Thank you for speaking to me. I confess that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. And I look to Jesus. And I call on his name, asking you, Jesus, save me. And I thank you based on your word that you will. Because salvation is by grace through faith. It is not of works. Thank you for saving me. Now fill me with your Holy Spirit and use me to bring glory and honor to the name of my Savior. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And if you just prayed that prayer, would you please let your small group leader know? Thank you.